0: Howdy. Welcome to another week of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee. And this week, I had the pleasure of speaking with George Gilder. George is a prolific author of many books that range from work on gender and sexuality to economics to technology. He really is all over the place. I hope to capture that in this interview and talk to him about not only his own life, but sort of the life of his works and what precipitated those. As you can tell, when the episode starts, we started mid-conversation. He jumped into being interesting right away. So just know as it starts, we are mid-conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Go read as much George Gilder as you can. So without further ado, meet George Gilder.
1: I think it's a matter of dimensions. C.S. Lewis wrote about how you can be in a kind of two, as if you're in a two-dimensional universe. You, right. You're right. you living in a, a landscape painting and you have a theory of a two-dimensional universe and you understand all the uh, pigments and all the uh, composition in a completely materialist two-dimensional way. Right and you can never imagine that in fact this two-dimensional image is just the vaguest reflection of a vast three and four and 11-dimensional universe beyond it the atheist lives in that kind of materialist trap
0: that's right we'll we'll just go ahead and and jump in george cuz this is already getting to be too fun but I imagine there's a lot in the in, in terms of your work on information that you could pull from Lewis's transposition as well. Have you yeah, found no. that to be true as well?
1: I call Lewis one of the great information theorists.
0: Interesting. And
1: I think he, he actually is. And uh, transposition is at the heart of it. His rejection of superstition. Right. The belief that uh, everything is chemistry and physics and can be reduced. to reductionist mindset that today is uh, depriving us of faces and reducing us to sort of neuter, kind of, but uh, not having any way of transcending it, and thus not having any humanity, being a creative in the image of our creator.
0: Well, I trust George that you are standing firm out there, as you called it in Massachusetts, and uh, you're being anti-fragile in the rest. Is that is that the case? That's The case. <laughs> well, thanks so much for uh, for coming on. Uh, as you as everyone has heard, a sort of mid-conversation. Welcome to Cannon Calls, Sir George Gilder, special guest. It's an honor to have you on. George is an American investor, author, economist. He's a futurist and co-founder of the Discovery Institute. George, that was the uh, that was the one sentence. I did my best to get your byline in one sentence. Did I miss oh, anything so I important? Well, <laughs>
1: you did a good job. So okay,
0: okay. Uh, George, I want to start kind of at the beginning with you first. Though, can you tell us who you are and, and where you came from? Gosh, I'm I'm
1: I'm from Teringham, Massachusetts, and I've lived here virtually all my life. Although I was actually born in New York, my mother lived in New York for a while. But I, I during the Second World War. But uh, my family all comes from uh, Teringham, Massachusetts, and I was uh, brought up on a dairy farm here. And uh, on the dairy farm, I, you know, used to clean out the calves and muck out the stables and get hay from the fields. And I got a a sense of immune systems and how they work. You got to educate your immune systems by exposing them (laughs) to uh, various viruses and other uh, threats, not. by concealing them or, or trying to isolate yourself. And I became an economist really based on information theory. Okay. And uh, information theory is an important science of the 20th century, and it's crucial to understand its hierarchical structure. Uh, you can't explain lower-level, higher-level things by uh, understanding lower-level things. Okay. And uh, the, we have a hierarchical universe. And this is uh, fundamental to information theory, and materialists deny, uh, really, the significance of information. They think information is just an expression of material. Relations, which in turn are accidental and thus ultimately meaningless. So in the end, they uh, deprive the human beings of of meaning and purpose, and uh, that's the the message. But I got it through a long and uh, road that through the Harvard University, the U.S. <laughs> Marine Corps, the and. Uh, writing books in the beginning about sex and family and uh, proceeding on to writing about poverty as the result of family breakdown and then recognizing that uh, poverty really has been the human condition throughout the existence of the race and and that what really needs to be explained is wealth and It seems to me that wealth is best explained by creativity in the image of the creator. Human beings were designed to be creative in the image of their creator. And that's sort of been the fundamental thesis of of all my works that are about economics, Sex, family, technology.
0: <laughs> okay, money. No, it's perfect. Perfect. So one thing before you—you're you're, gonna—you're giving spoilers to your life, George. That I was trying to, you know, walk people to, but you're—you're you're full of spoilers. One thing I wanted to ask. So as I look at your books, the first one coming out in 1966 with Bruce Chapman, and I saw that you—and I think we talked a little bit while you were here—that you essentially recanted. Some of the ideas in the book, so that was really interesting to me. In terms of you were you started somewhere, and then I, I'd love to hear kind of what changed. You know, that being your first book, what changed your mind about those certain ideas?
1: The party that lost its head, which I wrote with Bruce Chapman, who was my r- roommate at uh, H- Harvard, and we started a magazine together called Advance, that was a liberal Republican magazine. Okay. And so I was what I called myself a progressive republican chiefly because I opposed uh, Barry Goldwater's argument against the civil rights bill. Okay. That was really the reason we were we called ourselves progressive republicans. We were in favor of the civil rights movement, but we also from the beginning Believed that the civil rights movement should be based on the Constitution and on the uh, overcoming the remnants of slavery. Congress was allowed to make laws that overcame the residue of slavery. And uh, that was what civil rights should be about. It should be rectifying that historic error, not establishing new principles of equality that uh, of result and new government bureaucracies and new and also extending these affirmative action, uh, not just to blacks, but to a majority of the population. All, All women were represented to be victims and thus in need of affirmative action. And so at the heart of our The Party That Lost Its Head. I'm not going to say I was always, I was everything in that book was right. I mean, I I haven't read it for 25, (laughs) 40 years, probably, maybe 50. So I'm not sure just what's in it. But that was the heart of it, that uh, we were for civil rights, but uh, we were not for this uh, massive Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, affirmative action rules, sure. uh, Title IX <laughs> of sexual regimes, and yeah, we just so understood. So the next book I wrote was called "Sexual Suicide," which uh, opposed the parts of uh, the civil rights movement that were pertaining to the majority of human beings. <laughs>
0: So yeah, so sexual suicide it eventually became men in marriage, correct? Yes. in the next decade, I wrote
1: three or four books on this subject. Okay, and uh, the final one sort of summed it up, and it was called Men in Marriage, and I pretended that Men in Marriage was a reissue of Sexual Suicide because the publisher of Sexual Suicide was trying to stop me uh, from Publishing another book, got it. Uh, I can't. I don't want to go through all the contractual details. But anyway, <laughs> the result was I wrote what was essentially a new book called "Men and Marriage" and uh, pretended that it wasn't a new book. It was just uh, a reissue of "Sexual Suicide." But "Men and Marriage" really is the sums up my themes on family, family life, and uh, and I think it's. It's being proven right every day. You break down families, and the whole culture dissolves. the The whole economy, yeah, dissolves so, into kind of fragmentary futility.
0: What was the response at the time from critics about sexual suicide?
1: Well, I, I got um, Pig of the Year award from the National <laughs> Organization for Women. I thought that was pretty good. I went around the country trumpeting myself as pig of the year I I was brought up on a farm I understood the virtue of pigs and their importance and uh, <laughs> social <laughs> order so, uh, but so so they the result of this they were giving pig of the year awards every year and everybody would crawl away and hide after they received it and I ended it they never gave another Pig of the Year award.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So you are the reigning so forever champion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, what, what exactly, you mentioned a little bit, the thesis there and the the works at that time. You, you mentioned the four other books-ish. What was the central thesis there that they're reacting to that you would earn such, a, such an honor as Pig of the Year?
1: That uh, families are the foundation of civilized society and that they are based on the differences between the sexes. And you try to eliminate the differences between the sexes, and you erode and undermine families, and ultimately result in a plague of family breakdown or or even failure to form families, and ultimately decline in population, that uh, population itself is uh, population growth and is jeopardized by uh, sexual suicide as I called it the effort to deny the differences uh, that uh, make life meaningful and marriage feasible and procreation successful uh, right go forth and multiply and uh and we're now uh, increasingly dividing rather than multiplying, and I think that's uh, a real threat to uh, humanity.
0: I'm curious, since that book has come out, and now what, what's been, what have you seen as the sort of the, as far as the critics are concerned, the feminist movement and trajectory since? You know, for example, if this book were, came out today. Do you think the blowback would be in kind to what you received or would it be worse? Or, or do you think it might go along better? H- how would you, how do you I think? I
1: don't know. It's still, it, it's still in print after right 50 years or more. Right. And uh, so it would be regarded as utterly outrageous. I mean, <laughs> and and it would people would try to cancel it and try to cancel me, but uh, they've been trying to do that for some time. And I've managed to hang in there, <laughs> <laughs> and I've got more readers than ever. I have uh, some like one hundred and fifty thousand readers a day. Wow! On my daily prophecy now, and
0: uh, one uh... I don't
1: write a lot about this, but I I mention it. I it's when I wrote that book, twenty uh, percent of of black were b- born in. Uh, female-headed families. And I said that this was, uh, I was following Daniel Patrick Moynihan's insight that uh, the breakdown of the Black family was threatened the Black community in America. And uh, and now some 70% of uh, Blacks are born in and uh, female-headed families. And it clearly has caused everybody now is uh, claiming that the civil rights movement somehow failed and that racism still is prevalent and uh, that this is a fatal flaw in the whole American dream and establishment. And and I, I, so I think I was probably right,
0: right, (laughs) right. Now, one of the other books that I think, um, that at least I'm most familiar with, uh, that came out in 1981 was *Wealth and Poverty*. This particular thesis, I, I let me, I'll say something, and you tell me if that's if that's how you feel as well. But I feel like *Wealth and Poverty* gave conservatives an apologetic of sorts, essentially to not be embarrassed of or guilty about the free market. Do you agree with that? And then second, what were you seeing at the time that, that, that basically encouraged you to write that book?
1: It's not particularly, I don't like to think of it chiefly as a negative issue, g- giving conservatives a reason not to be feel uh, vulnerable about their beliefs. I mean, I, I think it was affirming
0: no, that's what that I mean. That's what I mean. You gave, there. are It usually... was a
1: celebration of capitalism yes. rather than a case for capitalism or an apology for capitalism. Irving Kristol, who was a famous Wall Street Journal columnist, had just written a book called Two Cheers for Capitalism. And uh, and I I said, I thought that was wrong. Capitalism deserves Three cheers! It, it, <laughs> he he believed that uh, capitalism was based on greed in some sense, or that it was based on you know, mere selfishness. And uh, I believed that that argument was really preposterous. That uh, selfishness is ubiquitous in human life. But uh, capitalists, in order to succeed, first have to understand the needs of others, and then they have to forego consumption, their own indulgence in order to save, in order to accumulate capital, to invest in ventures that will succeed or fail in proportion as they respond to the needs of others. And then the capitalist has to collaborate with others. Everything about capitalism, I believe, was ultimately altruistic. That is, it entails an orientation toward the needs of others. And thus, it wasn't inimical to the great Christian, Judeo Christian truths, it actually was a fulfillment of them. And and that was that was really the original insight that there was the widespread belief that somehow capitalism was based on was an incentive system. It was just a matter of carrots and sticks that induced people to go to work and to build things, and somehow by an invisible hand, the collective self-interest of individuals led to some common interest of all it was a kind of twisted argument that i thought was fundamentally wrong that the essential christian beliefs are fulfilled in a capitalist society uh, of course if individual moral codes and principles are not upheld uh, a capitalist society will tend to dissolve in other words greed doesn't lead to uh, success and riches, greed leads us by an invisible hand to ever to an ever expanding welfare state. As as it, uh, greed is the desire for unearned benefits. Right. It's uh, and and the best way to get unearned benefits is co- is to collaborate with government <laughs> and uh, crony capitalism is is a. A disease of capitalism. It's not a fulfillment of it.
0: I think you're exactly right. And one thing that uh, we've talked about on on here before is that conservatives seem particularly given to things like embarrassment, or you know, being like, "Well, it is. It may be run by greed, but it's the best thing we have for now." Or, or you know, anything that the left sort of barbs them with, they somewhat believe, and then they end up reacting to it and sounding shrill. And I think you're right. Your book sort of gave them a positive vision outside of that little back and forth.
1: Transcending it.
0: Yes. And has that been your experience with conservatives in terms of uh, just getting caught up in that back and forth? Do you see them tripping over themselves like that in other places besides economics? I think
1: with regard to, you know, they're all twisting themselves into knots about sexual issues. Right. You know, the... The absurdity that there are 68 sexes or whatever it is that uh, (laughs) Facebook is cataloged. Right. I mean, it's, and uh, the Democrats (laughs) really, I I think they're going to regret this. This is not going to look good in the future. That uh, the first thing uh, the Democrats did when they really took control in 2021 was to have a, benediction or grace or something where (laughs) all men and all women (laughs) yeah what a start and they banished all use of of genderized words i mean you 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 have to say parent you can't say father and mother you have to say sibling rather than sister or brother you uh, that, that all Gender-defined identities are banished from the law. This is a real sign of uh, intellectual idiocy. You know, it's just uh, it's decline and fall. So, so I'm I'm really kind of grateful to them for doing that when they (laughs) took office. I mean, it showed what we've been saying about them uh, was really true. I mean, they right. I mean, this is the whole nobody got up and protested that I hear about. I mean, no, no Democrat said, "Oh, what a ridiculous thing to do." They're all intimidated by the uh, terrible collapse and corruption of the university system, and that's really the heart of it, I think. Which is why I'm so it was so happy to come to Moscow and <laughs> see you guys starting new universities and new schools and. And really revitalizing the culture out there.
0: Well, you know, it's it's first steps That's in Moscow, hope. Idaho. That's, That's right. right, not Russia. So every, everybody <laughs> knows it. now. Before we move on from wealth and poverty, you had some uh, very interesting folks that loved it, and then also the detracted. Can you tell us about the effects that the book had on the Reagan administration?
1: Wealth and Poverty was a worldwide bestseller. It was just an astonishing development. I mean, it uh, Ray, uh, President Reagan adopted it and uh, had it distributed to everybody in his cabinet, and, and it became a global bestseller. It had Sam dat versions and communist China and Russia. It was it was just an amazing, and it was the number one book in France for six months. <laughs> I mean, just it was just an, an amazing success. And so, I, I it, yes, people said the Laffer curve is disproven and it's trickle down economics. I mean, all these what I regarded to be absurd claims. And so, I, I think. Um, I really think Wealth and Poverty was uh, almost complete success, and and it didn't. Uh, and it was such a success that I decided to really stop focusing on economics <laughs> and to learn new subjects. I decided to learn technology. I, I, I saw that the microchip was the most important technological breakthrough of our era beyond uh, nuclear power. And uh, the microchip showed that uh, whole world's in a grain of sand. I mean, the microchip was made of sand, and uh, yet it allowed uh, the creation of whole cathedrals of information and ideas. And uh, this was uh, really my subject for the subsequent for the rest of my life, I've been uh, writing how human beings, creative in the image of their creator, could turn sand into uh, cathedrals of mind. And, and that really has been a, a theme. And it's also because microchips have been are still a foundation of the world economy. China and the United States today. Are really struggling over the intellectual property underlying the creation of micro-pro- microchips. And I think we're making a terrible mistake of trying to use our technology to stop China. I think that's a futile and stupid thing to do. But, uh, my insight in in Wealth and Poverty, just in passing, but in Microcosm and Telecosm and all those books about microchips and fiber optics and the electromagnetic spectrum, all these technologies is vindicated today. The world is really struggling over who's going to dominate the next generation of microchip.
0: Right. Right. now. Real quick, before we move from wealth and poverty, Ayn Rand was not a fan, as I understand oh, yes.
1: it. Yes. That's, that <laughs> is a, That is her
0: last speech. Yeah. Tell us about that.
1: Her last speech she ever gave, I gather, was at the Ford Hall Forum in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, she devoted, devoted it to an attack on wealth and poverty and the idea that somehow... Uh, Uh, selfishness was bad and that uh, somehow I was describing capitalism as altruistic and this somehow rendered me as a socialist in some sense, a collectivist. (laughs) Okay. It was uh, she I mean, I think she was a great woman, but she her great and fatal flaw was her atheism, which. uh, Right which I think is a really crippling idea. by the way, the Discovery Institute has just published a new book by Steve Meyer, you know who is head of their science okay called The Return of the God Hypothesis and it's a it's a major new book by Steve Meyer, okay, which shows that uh, really that, science as when people talk about science what cs lewis called scientism right is really an irrational faith you know they believe in things like infinitely multiple parallel universes and all these bizarre and preposterous ideas in order to save them from recognizing the possibility of uh, of god right and uh, Steve does an excellent job in the return of the God hypothesis of showing how scientists are increasingly coming to understand that that uh, science is not coherent and and uh, if it's all based on the materialist superstition the belief that there's nothing there but atoms and molecules
0: exactly so now, I hope folks are keeping uh, just a list of books to be to be uh, looking into. So add that one by Steve Meyer.
1: Yeah, Steve okay. Meyer. He's a scientist from uh, Cambridge University in England, and he's uh, the head of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. There we and go. He's, okay. He's just...
0: Now, going back to the microchip, did you hand President Reagan his first microchip? Was that the story I, I remember? I did.
1: That was one of my one of my I think in 1985 I uh, handed Ronald Reagan a 64k <laughs> Micron DRAM okay <laughs> that's a dynamic random access memory chip and I told him that uh, this technology was ultimately going to make possible strategic defense initiative uh, possible to to intercept incoming missiles and uh, that it wouldn't require vast a vast software program that people were saying would be necessary that instead it could be incorporated in microchips and uh, nose cones of all uh, interceptors. And so you have a distributed defense and uh, and I think I, I, that influenced uh, Reagan. He later went to Moscow. Russia that the, the the other <laughs> Moscow in Russia if you there's a Moscow in Russia you may not know about it, but that's right. Reagan gave a speech at the Mos- Moscow State University a famous speech. Uh, Brett Byer, the TV journalist, wrote a book about it recently and uh, it was written by my cousin Josh Gilder who was a speechwriter for Reagan, okay. And it was, I, I was certainly involved with it because it was all about microchips. It really did, I really did have an impact on the Reagan administration and its recognition that this technology would be crucial to the future, not only of defense, but also of our national prosperity.
0: The 80s, it seems like, was a real transition moment, as you mentioned. You kind of put the pen down on economics at that point And sort of, it, it, would you say that kind of started off what, what most have called a futurist, your futurist career? Could yeah. you- could-
1: Yes, yes. Because it, it that was, this was, I really did predict that the microchip would change everything. And that Gave me a reputation of the future as a futurist. I wasn't really the first to do it. I th- I think uh, Alvin Toffler's book Third Wave was. He didn't focus on microchips. He focused on computers. And I think the microchip was fundamental. So maybe I was one of the first to see that the microchip changed. You know, technology all consisted of pushing and pulling and exploding matter from the outside. And the microchip was the first technology that was based on manipulating matter from the inside. And this made possible, as Richard Feynman wrote, of just uh, tremendous complex machines made at the nanoscale of... billionth of a meter. This has really been the heart of all our economic developments since uh, the 1980s has been this discovery that that you could manipulate matter from the inside and create vast machines with trillions of moving parts and tiny little grains of sand. And that's really been uh, the great revelation of technology since the 1980s
0: now you did quite a bit in that space and up till even 2018 when you wrote a book called life after google the fall of big data in the rise of the blockchain economy that had a really interesting story when we talked about its international influence can you talk a little bit about that
1: well, the surprising thing about it, wealth and poverty succeeded in the United States first, and that was it. And then it went overseas. Right. The surprise with life after Google was its reception in China. Okay. The Chinese really adopted it, and it was named by a major Chinese literary institute as the best social science book published in China last year in nineteen eighteen. It was just an amazing thing. And it became a bestseller in China. Wow. And and a bigger bestseller than it was in the United States. And it's been a real bestseller a good seller for ever since it came out more than two years ago. It's almost two and a half years, two and a half years ago now
0: what and, what was uh, the thesis of that book like what about the thesis of that book do you think made it so successful not only internationally but it, it also had domestic uh success as well
1: yeah well it, oh it did have, it was you know one of the top sellers on Amazon for 2 years it was the top seller on cryptocurrencies it essentially saw that the blockchain this um, new kind of database that was incorporated in Bitcoin and made it possible to have a a new internet architecture based on um, verifiable timestamp facts and transactions. And and, uh, this new technology would enable not only a new internet architecture that isn't hacked, thousands of times a, a day but uh, also a new global money that uh, couldn't be hacked by central banks all the time stealing from the future in order to pay for consumption now which is really the basic strategy of most of the central banks of the world so it was uh, it showed that the blockchain is a fundamental new technology that is going to transform the world and will be a technology as significant in its own way as the microchip that makes it possible. Uh, The blockchain is only possible because of the vast expansion of that memory technology I handed to Ronald Reagan back in 1985. Then it was 64. DRAM, that's 64,000 bits, and now it's uh, 64 billion bits you can put in one DRAM. Wow. And so it's million-fold rise in the capacity of memory chips. And this means that you can, uh, rather than having to have a financial system, for example, like a Visa, MasterCard, or all controlled in some central database somewhere. Instead, you can have all the transactions recorded and timestamped immutably in every node of the network, every computer in the network. So it's uh, it means that that you create an unhackable structure, both for me and for information. Uh, if if you try to change something, you can't just change it one place. You because the same facts or the same transactions or monetary values are recorded on computers all around the global network. You got to control all the computers in order to change one timestamp fact. So this is a a breakthrough that both creates an internet that can't be manipulated by Twitter or whatever from day to day, and uh, also a new financial foundation that uh, is comparable to the Foundation previously supplied by gold. When we had the gold standard, we had a single money around the world. Right, and uh, now we, there's a hope for cryptocurrencies that can form a similarly stable and immutable money around the world. I have some Bitcoin is didn't, didn't quite do it. It almost did it, but it didn't quite do it. And Bitcoin is a speculative asset, really, rather than a potential replacement for fiat currencies like the dollar. But uh, I believe that using cryptocurrencies, a new monetary system is going to emerge that escapes the manipulation of central bankers and governments. And the (laughs) idea that money is is a sovereign tool of governments is just misconceived. All through the history of the gold standard, when money was gold, there was really only one measuring stick of value, and that was gold. And in 1971, we broke away from gold, from the gold standard. And uh, it hasn't been until the emergence of cryptocurrencies over the last few years that there's a real opportunity to create a new money as a measuring stick that that doesn't change rather than a magic wand for central banks.
0: (laughs) Right. Uh, Now, lest anybody balk at that, at the uh, life after Google, imagining a world without Google, you did write the book Life After Television in 1990. And I imagine a lot of those predictions are... Are coming in just right so
1: well the life after television is was right <laughs> now it wasn't right it wasn't right in every detail right but, uh, but it's 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 essentially right that what we're doing today is uh part of this emergence of new media that uh are distributed around the world and are controlled by their users rather than by some Top-down centralized power.
0: Now, looking at y- you mentioned before that that you, while there's been this this sort of uh, tech side of your career, but early on it was a lot of family and economics side of your career that uh, they look see you know they might seem disparate on the surface, but that you did sort of have a central thesis running throughout. As I thought about that question, I thought maybe one thing as I've, as I've read your works across that spectrum is creativity and freedom are the most important aspects of your work. Would you, would, is that true? Did I get
1: it? you got it. That is really true. And since then, I've come to interpret this through information theory and Claude Shannon defined information as surprise. That's good. And, uh, uh, a Princeton economist named Hirschman, Albert Hirschman wrote that uh, you couldn't really predict economic progress at uh, because creativity always comes as a surprise to us and this means that all deterministic schemes, top-down collectivist materialist schemes are doomed because uh, because all, Economic progress is based on unexpected developments. Uh, Claude Shannon measures information itself by the degrees of freedom of the person who transmitted the message. A message uh, can be surprising and unexpected in proportion to the freedom that its sender has to. Uh, Say unexpected things. If everything I say today you already know, then uh, no information is being transmitted. And this is was uh, Claude Shannon's uh, great insight uh, that information is measured not by its determinism but by its surprisal, its unexpectedness. What he called its entropy and uh, so all these uh, themes of my analysis sort of have uh, converged in information theory now, and I'm writing a new book uh, called Life After Capitalism, which uh, really <laughs> shows how information theory is both affirms my religious insights and my political and economic views. Capitalism is not an incentive system, a system of carrots and sticks. It's an information system driven by human creativity and the image of our creator. And that's sort of the theme that uh, I'm now pursuing and really have been pursuing from the beginning.
0: Right, right. It does seem like uh, your books have all been leading to that particular book, a place where you can say it all at the same time. As we kind of wrap up here, one question I did have, we recently, in the last few months or so, had a William F. Buckley biographer on, and you had been, I think your first time was with Wealth and Poverty. You can correct me on that. But uh, you'd been on Firing Line, his discussion show, essentially. Is there any good uh, William F. Buckley stories that you have?
1: Well, I i was on, uh, on um, Firing Line a couple times, but I also wrote uh, uh, a biography, a biographical article about Bill Buckley uh, way back in the 1960s in Playboy <laughs> and a magazine of all things. Okay. And uh, when I proposed the article to uh, Buckley, he said, oh, well, I'm just going out to see Barry Goldwater. Uh, why didn't you come with me? So he took me out to uh, Scottsdale. I flew with him. Uh, interviewing him on the plane to Phoenix and went to Scottsdale and spent a couple days, several days with uh, Goldwater. And this was after Goldwater had uh, just lost the election and I'd written the party that lost his head. (laughs) And- Buckley and Goldwater were both so generous and uh and uh intelligent and understanding about it. It was really the opposite of the political environment that we're in today where if you write something write the wrong thing you get canceled. <laughs> I didn't get canceled. I got uh, put up by Barry and his son's room uh, and uh <laughs> And I wrote a quite a celebration of um, of Buckley in uh, in in the Playboy article, and uh, I've, I'm quite pleased. It was a it was a good article, and I also met Claire Booth Luce out there during that visit. Okay, she was she was a friend of Goldwater's and a great conservative lady and wife of Henry Luce of Time Life and. And uh, she was also a great Christian. Okay. And um, and uh, she was uh, she believed that the world was coming to an end. That was everything was tragic, and uh, (laughs) we had quite a debate. And uh, that debate became uh, was also uh, described in in the article. So it 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 was I had a quite a after that I had an interesting relationship with Buckley for the rest of his life
0: now as we uh, as we move into the 2020s and the rest of this particular century do your futurist capacities extend to the social side not just tech where, where do you see us you know how do you see the next few years and and largely the the rest of the century is it
1: well I, I think that uh, you know the remnant groups, Or have to re-establish, recover the civilization. I mean, they are now preserving it through something of a dark age, right? But I think capitalism has uh, is moving on, and Christianity triumphs, and together uh, they can uh, perpetuate our civilization in the face of a real, widespread attack on it, right? And I also think there's a lot of hope in China. We have a a hostile regime in China today, but nonetheless, there is much more freedom in China than it would seem to be from the surface. I mean, they they don't allow political freedom in China, but there's a lot of uh, free people in China. And a lot of businesses, very creative businesses in China. They have more business starts than we do. So, in some ways, China is the leading capitalist power. And this is there. There are a lot of ironies and and uh, conflicts. But if we uphold our essential faith and pursue it, creative in the image of our Creator, I think we can prevail.
0: George you've been very kind by offering us this time. I hope to see you back. We'd love to have you back out not only in Moscow but back on on the show as well. So, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Everyone can find your stuff. We, you can see those firing line episodes. They are on YouTube as well as finding your books. Do you have any preference on where folks pick up your books? Amazon's the easiest place to find them all. Uh, <laughs> but but you can I mean it depends.
1: I mean they're trying to close bookstores these that's
0: right. days that's right you write daily do you want to do you want to let folks know where they can find yeah, you there it,
1: it's gilderpress.com as you can reach me okay and uh, that's my agora daily prophecy excellent and uh, i write it almost every day i i've done some 200,000 words of it in the last year and a half or so And now I'm writing a book, so the dailies are getting a little less (laughs) regular than they were. But um, and life after Google still uh, is tells the story of the opportunities that blockchain presents, and the triumph of Bitcoin and Ethereum, and the flaws of Bitcoin, and the possibilities are. All explained in Life After Google, so I'm, I'm still pleased with that, and I Life After Capitalism is really developing the information theory of economics uh, as a way to show how technology continues to advance even when the monetary systems collapse, uh, and. Uh, Wealth is knowledge. Growth is learning, and uh, money is time. Finally, and uh, those are all explained in the information theory of economics, which is introduced quite fully in Life After Google.
0: Which leads us, which leads us right back, you know, to Lewis, till we have faces and transposition yeah. essay, which means we've come full circle, sir. Thank you again. Okay and we are eager to have you back thank you so much